this morning is um, Shepherd's Conference. Okay, how many of you have been to the Shepherd's Conference before? A few of you. Great. After 2010, all of you will have your hands up. No, it'd be great. Shepherd's Conference is um, a conference that is put on um, by and at John MacArthur's church in California. And um, it's primarily just exposing you to a lot of great preaching and uh, different like seminars and kind of like breakout sessions uh, that touch on a whole variety of theological and <coughs> practical ministry issues that might arise and just trying to think in a biblical way about the church and gospel ministry and things like that. Um, I don't even remember who they have coming in this year. I think it's the same guys they had last year. Um, Tom Pennington is a pastor in, in Texas who used to be on staff at Grace. And um, Rick Holland will be speaking again. He does a Resolved Conference. John MacArthur, obviously, and I forget who. Phil Johnson is doing it again. Steve Lawson. Steve and Lawson. Steve Lawson's coming back. Yeah, you don't want to miss uh, Steve. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a great time. The cast sent you guys an email, I believe, earlier in the week or at the Yeah, it was on Monday she sent it. Um, and I'm just going to kind of work through her email and talk to you about it. It's, it's optional. It's not a part of anything that we're doing. There's, there's not an expectation or a, a, from our side a, a demand at any point, just a, an encouragement that if you're in a position where you're able to do it financially, because it's, it's not cheap, unfortunately, um, we would love for you to, to go. And um, one of the, the, the best things about it is not just what you're going to get when you're there, but the, it's just the whole being together. Uh, we usually are, are out there with at least a 10, 12 people and, and would love there to be even more. Um, the guys in H3 this year are being invited as well, and the guys who are in H3 last year are being invited. You're being invited. <coughs> Uh, it would be great to have a, a big bunch of guys to be able to go down. Here's the details. Um, it's Wednesday. It starts Wednesday morning, March 3rd. So it's during the week. Uh, it basically goes through till Friday. Most of us uh, end up leaving either Saturday morning and driving back, um, or um, very few people stay through till Sunday. They they have a regular, just a regular church service on Sunday, but they kind of still are greeting every all of you and, and pouring uh, bunches of uh, kindness and generosity out on you, even on Sunday when you're there. This conference is amazing. It, it, uh, you will walk away with a very large bag full of books going home that are given to you um, and all kinds of other things. They just really take good care of you. Uh, it, you'll feel very pampered while you're there. Um, but it starts on Wednesday, March 3rd, and it goes through Friday the 5th. Um, what, what you need to do if you're interested is you need to go to their um, website, which is uh, shepherdsfellowship.org um, forward slash SC for Shepherds Conference. And you can go back to that email and just go off the link if you want. Um, and I don't remember what the registration is for it. She didn't put it in the email. Can anybody do internet right here? If you can, you can... If we want to find out, we can do that. I want to say it's probably in the neighborhood of 250 bucks, maybe closer. Is it three? It's 300 just for the conference, okay? But you get like $300 worth of books. Yeah. 
but you'll get, and plus they'll give you also on top of that probably like a $50 gift card to go to use in their bookstore. So you're gonna get back, I mean you're gonna get $100 worth of books easily, if not more. Yeah, and, and bunch of free, every breakfast will be taken care of for you there and lunch, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, there's just constant food to eat. I suggest going on a diet before you go. Um, what we do when we go out is, there's two different ways. In her email, she talks about um, either driving on the 2nd on Tuesday um, or flying in the fr Wednesday morning. Um, she didn't even mention the main thing that we, most guys do, and that is getting up very early on Wednesday morning and just driving. The conference starts about 10.30, and we usually in the past have just met at the church about 5 in the morning and just take off driving and get there about you know 11 or so. Um, so, and registration starts at 10.30, and I think the first session is shortly after that or something. But that's what most of us do, because you've got to work through until you're already going to take Wednesday and Thursday, Friday off anyway. Um, if you go, uh, no sense in taking Tuesday off. The option um, with Southwest is really a good option if you want to fly, and if you can afford to do it. The, the flights are, are pretty, uh, well, they can be reasonable. You just have to get online and check and see. Um, 59 each way. So um, she's, she gives some information here about the flight. There's a 725 flight from Phoenix to Burbank um, that others will be considering being on. Um, and so that gets you there. The only deal you'll need to do is make sure that you, what, what's worked out before the guys who are flying is those who are driving uh, get to Burbank about the time that the guys are flying and landing. And so we just kind of make sure we coordinate how many seats we need and we pick up or whatever or if people are out there early we just make a run to the to the airport and pick everybody up that needs to get picked up um, the rest of all the rest of us are making arrangements to stay in a hotel called the Beverly Garlands which is about five minutes south of the airport down in I think it's Studio City um, off of the 170 it's um, uh, the easiest spot to stay a lot of people go up to Santa Clarita and stay at a hotel up there but you fight the traffic both ways twice a day. And if you go south, nobody is going north in the morning. And nobody is going south at night when you're going back. And it's perfect. It takes literally five minutes to get to the church. Um, and you can, the, the hotel per person a night is $119 if you, um, and you can double up in the rooms and even go forward to a room if you want um, and save yourself lots of money there. And she's got some of the numbers there for you. So again, it, it's, not, it's not cheap. Um, however, if you are able to maybe set aside some money and, and work on that, or if you want to talk to the elders about a payment plan for you, we would love to. Or if there's a need of, for maybe a little bit of a scholarship, we would like to talk to you about that. Um, so please uh, start considering it. And the reason we're telling you now, even though it's in March, is usually in January, the conference is fully booked in full. And there'll be probably three to 4,000 pastors and church leaders there. Um, so it's just a great time. We, we eat together for our meals, and, and we'll just talk about what we're you know, hearing and, and listening to and, and being exposed to, uh, and it's, it's just great. We'd love for you guys to be a part of that, if you can do it. Do any of you have any questions on it now, or those of you who have been before, is there anything that you would want to say or bring up? Yes, Matt Dodd. Um. 
I'd say that it's a, because most of the elders go, so it's a really sweet time to spend, you know, multiple days around all elders and get to know them and, and see more of their hearts and shepherding and, and also see, be around a bunch of other shepherds and the conference led tended to by elders and shepherds is just really it's I've been I've been excited about this conference for the last month. I've been really eager to go and, and hope that a bunch of you will go and and uh, just have a, a great time together. Um, it really just helps us build our relationships together. So, love for you to consider that. Um, all right. So Shepherds Conference. What the way you start the whole thing off is by you going online and registering yourself and you paying, and then you need to let Cassidy know what you think your rooming situation will be. If you've got friends or family out there um, that you can stay at uh, cheaper, by all means do that. Um, but let her know because she will help coordinate the rooms and the driving for us all, okay? And we'll get that taken care of as we get closer. Um, secondly, we need to make a change to our calendar um, for February. So if you want to take your calendar out, we'll do that. to look at the uh, February 20th date. Um, we'll need to change that one. Um, I'd like to push it back if we can to the 27th. Um, the elders um, are organizing a, an elder retreat up in the White Mountains and the date that we originally aimed for to do that in between build and in between women's ministries, in between all seven <coughs> families of the elders' schedules um, didn't work. And so the only weekend that was available was that one. And so it was seemed easiest to try to move build if we can. So from February 20th to February 27th. And that's actually fine because we won't have our next one until March 20th because of the weekend of um, the Shepherds Conference, March 3rd through the 6th. Um, we will, won't have one. So I hope that doesn't cause a problem for any of you. If it does, just plan to be, get online and listen and, and do the homework and everything there, okay? All right, so from February 20th to 27th. And I'll make sure that we get an email out to you too so you can see it electronically again, all right? Okay, why don't you, uh, do you need to turn your notebook over? Can you... Think of the disciplines. Um, are they starting to get ingrained in your brain? Um, the order of them? Uh, what's the, the first biblical discipline that we're trying to focus on and, and direct ourselves to above all the others? The heart. Because if you are shepherding your heart to God in his word, then in, in order to meet with him and to know him, to love him, to obey him, to receive <coughs> His, his grace in the gospel to, to be encouraged, to be filled up to all the fullness of God, um, Ephesians kind of language, um, you then are a man who is poised and ready by God's doing to care for other people and minister to other people and bring the gospel to people. If you and I don't do that, we end up being hollow men, empty men, depending on things we learned long ago, 
um, things that we learned weeks ago, things that we were impressed by months ago, and that's the only thing we really have to say or share or do. And um, yeah, you don't want to be that kind of man. Uh, we want to call the men together in this church to be a man, to be men who are filled up with God in His Word. Um, and so you have to shepherd your heart to do that. And it's a biblical discipline to do that. It's a spiritual discipline to do that. You don't just wake up and this naturally happens. You have to shepherd your heart to come to the Word of God, to interact with it in such a way that you're not just coming to it to get facts. You're not just coming to it to, to get a message for your small group or for your discipleship setting or for, uh, to get a message to preach or teach. You're not coming to the Word of God primarily to, to win an argument with somebody. You're coming to the Word of God because you love God and you want to know Him. And this is where He revealed Himself most clearly, more than any other place in the whole wide world. So you come to this to meet with Him. You're a man of God who wants to meet with God. And that kind of man God uses in amazing ways in this world. Out of that flows everything. The next thing you do with that is, is you're not, once you've been filled up with um, God and His Word, the first thing that happens then after that is you start thinking about your home, your household relationships, the people that you live closest with. You want to make an impact there the best that you can. You want your home to be an inviting place, a place that gives off an aroma of the gospel, uh, an aroma of something of who God is in the gospel, in Christ. You you want it to be clear where you're at among the people you're, you're living with, that, that God is everything. And um, you do that with your children if you have them. You do that with your wife, obviously, if you have a wife. You do that with your roommates so that you can set a good pattern now uh, so that when God someday, Lord willing, gives you that forever roommate <clears throat> who will be far more sinful than your, you see your roommates to be now uh, and who will help you to see how much more sinful than you ever revealed yourself to be uh, with your roommates. Uh, marriage is, is, is very interesting. Never do people love each other more and see more sin in one another than in marriage. And if you think it's tough with roommates, oh my goodness, guys. <laughs> oh my goodness, I... Yeah, get married. Um, <laughs> and you know what? There is so much joy, in it, and you will be so full of, of what, all the blessings that God gives in it. But um, yeah, you can't, you got to get yourself out of playing house, okay, in your mind. Think, oh, someday when we're married, it will be like this, and we'll play, you know, you're playing house in your mind. And man, just stop that now. And, and, and realize that what you're interacting with your roommates on at a certain level now is, is not going to change when you get a roommate who's your wife. You, some of those same things are going to keep coming out, and you might as well begin to address them now and in the power of the gospel um, defeat those things. So uh, that's your household relationships or the home. Thirdly, you're ready then to step out into the lives of people in the church, right? And it's not, again, a sequential thing that you only do your heart, and then when you're done with all of shepherding your heart, then you move on to the home. And then when you're all done with that, and only when you're all done with that, then do you step into the lives of people. No, there's overlap here, and yet there's priority, right? That's what we're trying to say. The guy who is not playing leapfrog over his heart, the guy who's not playing leapfrog over his family, is a guy that you want involved in the church ministering to people. Um, and uh, you... What we're doing right now and last time together in this morning is we're going to be in, in First Thessalonians looking at Paul's way of doing gospel ministry. It's a very helpful snapshot 
for us. And then we'll, when we come back at the beginning of the year on your calendar <coughs> in January, we'll spend two times together on the qualifications for deacons um, so that you can um, understand what a deacon is. Because I think there is, this is probably one of the things in the church that is probably one of the most confusing things, is what is a deacon? Because you can go to one <coughs> church and the deacons are running the show. And you can go to another church and there are no deacons anywhere. And you can go to another church and deacons are the ones who handle the finance which means they're running the show. Or, you, you know, it's just everything in between. Deacons are elders in one church, and in another church, elders are not deacons. And, you know, it's, we need to be clear on what it is, and we want you to understand what we understand um, deacons to be in, in God's Word. And so I'm really looking forward to that with you. Um, yeah, so there's your first four quali- uh, disciplines. Five and six are theological in nature and our church's vision and purpose statement. So, uh, and again, the thing that I want you to be most mindful of is for yourself that when you find yourself in a spiritual funk, things not going well, you know that you're not in a place that maybe you, you should be, you already know what to do. Shepherd your heart. And don't be surprised that you get in a spiritual funk. Hello, you are human. You are full of sin. God gave you a new heart that is encased in flesh. There is this battle going on all of the time in you, and you are going to find yourself in places at times that you don't want to be spiritually. You know what to do. By his grace, shepherd your heart to the word of God and come back to God's word. Expose your heart to God in his word, and things will begin to change. Um, care for people and um, in your home and step out. So... Um, you need to know that for yourself. You need to know that also for when you're meeting with a brother and his life is not where he wants it to be. You know what to say to him. You know. Let's talk about your heart. How are you doing in your heart with God's word? That's where you want to start. Look, you can try to address symptoms. You know, I've got this problem with this person and we've been in this broiled fight for three months and I don't know what to do. And you can go try to work on all of that reconciliation stuff over there. And you might even fix all of that. And if the guy, if all of that came because he's not shepherding his heart to God in the word, just get yourself ready for the next time when it comes up. Because it's going to come up again. Because the guy is not the right kind of guy yet. Do you understand? So start here. Start there. People come to you in ministry. They come to you telling you one thing. And the way that we talk about it in, among the elders is the issue is not the issue. People come to you in, in the <coughs> church and in relationships and when there's problems telling you what they believe the issue to be. Nine times out of ten, that issue is not the issue. There's an underlying issue that you need to get to that if you can take care of that issue, you'll take care of the issue they came with you for and about five others that they haven't even put their eyes on yet. So come back to the very beginning, come back to the base level, the foundation, come back to the heart and come back to the word of God and having the heart be fed on what is there in the word of God and you'll find many issues and troubles and challenges being taken care of and all of the right and good things beginning to grow. Question? Yes, there's a question. Yeah. Mike. Um, with ministering somebody, what if the person is just never no matter how much time you spend with them or effort you put in them willing to uh, correct or address certain things and, and do 
Great question. Do you guys understand the question? What do you do when um, if you, you kind of feel like you're at a point with somebody where you're just banging your head up against the wall and, um, and they with you? Um, I think at that point, number one, always make, bring the gospel at the center of everything in, in any of your dealings with people. Because when you do that, you then know if what they're rejecting if they reject. You know if they're stalling, you know what they're stalling on. If you talk about other issues, um, even good things that are outside of the gospel, if they stall, you don't know what they're stalling for um, necessarily. You, you, you make it easier on yourself and make it clear what the gospel is in the relationship and how it relates to them. I'm meeting with a guy right now who's been a Christian for, who said he was raised in a Christian home, grew up in a Christian home, and um, over the last probably five or six years, has his heart has just completely cooled, and he has now become a skeptic, and um, has portrayed himself at his work to be the former Christian, and yet his family doesn't know yet that he is that, and he's, his marriage is going down the tubes, Everything is collapsing around him. And the approach that, and I'm not saying this is right, this is what all I know to do, is I, I've come to him and I immediately started talking to him just about, let's just talk about the gospel. Let's just talk about the gospel. And I lay out there with him every time we get together, we're reading through <coughs> Matthew together. I'm reading Matthew to him when I sit down with him. He's not reading outside, but he still wants to get together, so we're in, I think, Matthew 16. And I take every opportunity I can to just lay out the gospel. This is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel is. So that when he's stalling, I know that he's not stalling because I bought him the wrong kind of muffin that morning or because I'm not spending the right kind of time with him or whatever. I know that he's stalling about the message. I want it to be so clear that what our time is about is, is I love you and, and here's the gospel. Now, what are you going to do with it? And so then when he pulls the parking brake up, it's clear to me. I know what the parking brake's coming up for. It's coming up because of the gospel. And, and I think you want to try to get to that with people so that when six months later, six weeks later, six days later, whatever, and you're seeing that there's no advancement being made at all, you can make a decision that says, I am now going to adjust my relationship with you. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I don't think that's wise to do and say, look, I'm just done with you because, you know, you're just not paying attention. And or you wouldn't say that. But, you know, this isn't going anywhere. So, I'm look, I, I'm not interested in investing anymore. I don't think you want to say that to anybody. But I think you can say with a clear conscience, if you hear the gospel the issue, I think you can say to them, look, it appears to me that... Um, Maybe really for you the issue is the gospel. You might even want to ask him, is the issue for you the gospel? You're not just really interested in responding right now. Get that, just get that out on the table and say, you know what, let's, let's change our, the way this looks. You know, I'm available for you and I would love to talk with you and I'm going to talk with you every single time on this issue at this way, at this level. Um, instead of meeting every other week, let's get together in a month and see how it's going.
I'm available for you. And look, you can say that. You can say that if you've made it clear that the gospel's the issue. You should feel, to feel free, I think, to say, now how long should that go before you do that? I don't know, that's between you and God. And everybody's a little different. If it's your kid in your house, I hope it's a little longer than six months. Okay? It's gonna be a long time. Okay, but that's between you and the Lord to have to talk about. Danny. Well, back to your um, comment about the issue is not really the issue. The issue is 98% of the time or 99.9 sin. Right. And so what? how do you address sin? You address it with scripture. Right. And so just to add to what you're saying is, is that if you keep digging deep enough, you're going to find the sin someplace. And then the word of God... You know, if you're having, if they're struggling, there's nothing that you can do to arm wrestle them into changing, but the Word of God can. Right. And uh, so, if you if you know what the sin issue is, or can get them to uh, identify what it is, of course, repentance is uh, is critical. But then, the the Word of God is going to convict, and and uh, so you just keep hammering them with Scripture, the Gospel, yeah. uh, and it's. Uh, that's that's yeah. all you can do. That's all you can do, and 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 a lot of times, you, it, it may take you several meetings before you even figure out what on earth is really going on with with somebody. You, they they may come to you telling you that this is the deal as they as they see it. They lay it on the table, and you talk about it, and you talk about it, and you talk about it, and it's your third meeting, and you're still talking about it, and, and you're still scratching your head going, I don't get it. All the more reason at some point in the conversation to say, um, if, if you haven't already kind of gotten a hint of where it's at and what the, what the sin issue is, just start reading the Bible together. Go to something like James. Go to something like a gospel where you're going to be exposed to Jesus, where you're going to at some point have to talk about a substitute who went to a cross, who spread out his arms, and he died on behalf of sinners to atone for Just get to that. Lead it to that. You lead. Because you know, even though you might not be able to see it yet in the person's life, you know better than them, perhaps, what really the issue is. And I don't say that arrogantly, and I'm not trying to encourage you to be arrogant, but if you understand God's word and what it says about our condition and about what our hope is, then you know you need to lead them. And lead them <coughs> humbly so, lead them patiently, and care for them with the gospel. So that when they stall, you know what they are stalling about. And it's clearer to you. Or when they want to run forward, you know what they're running forward to. Let me give you an example that's maybe on the extreme side. There's, there's, a, there's a way of thinking that says, if, if somebody's really having trouble, look, go and just learn, learn what they're, just befriend them. Find out what they like, be with them. Go do what they like to do. And so you start going with them. You start going to the movies that they like to go to. You go eat at the places they do. You're just hanging out. You're just being with them. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, obviously, you want to show that you care for people. You're going to see today in 1 Thessalonians 2 how important it was for Paul to have fond affection for people. You can do that. But what happens if they pull their parking brake up on that? And that's primarily what you've done. Why are they doing that? What are they slowing down on? What are they rejecting? For all you know, it's you. They just don't like you. <clears throat> you haven't said anything yet about God, His Word, 
what it says about sin, what the, what the solution is to anything. So the more you just spend time with people and you're just trying to love them and, and spend time with them and do the things that they want to do, that's great. But you're not helping yourself and you're not helping them until you can get to what the issue is underneath it all and you can get to God's word in it and do that. Now, it takes both. You've got to care for people and you've got to bring the content of scripture and the gospel to people. But make it clear what the content is so that when they do slow down or when they want to run forward, you know why they want to run forward. Because you've made the gospel clear in addressing the needs that they have. And otherwise, you won't know. And then if they just keep slowing down, and if you've been clear, I think you can prayerfully before God adjust your relationship with them. Not end it, but adjust it. Um, so, anyway. Let's look at our devotional quote. We'll pray and we'll jump into 1 Thessalonians 2. Take up that long card and big quote. Um, one of the things that I have done in the past when I read um, certain books is I like to take the words of the author and I like to turn it into my own words and into a prayer that I could pray to God. So it's a way that I try to um, use um, the books that I read to help my heart and help my relationship with God, not just that, oh, that was a great quote, I like that, but something that I can actually meditate on and even talk to God about. And, and I did that with um, Piper's words. They're primarily his words. I just tweaked them a little bit to be like a prayer. And this is from Don't Waste Your Life. Heavenly Father, in order to make others glad in God with an everlasting gladness, my life must show that you are more precious than life. To do this, I must make sacrificial life choices rooted in the assurance that magnifying Christ through generosity and mercy is more satisfying than selfishness. If Christ is an all-satisfying treasure and promises to provide all my needs, even through famine and nakedness, then to live as though I have all of the same values as the world would actually betray you. How am I using our money and how do I feel about my possessions? If I look like my life is devoted to getting and maintaining things, I will look like the world. And that will not make Christ look great. You will look like a religious side interest that may be useful for escaping hell in the end, but doesn't make much difference in what I live and love here. You will not look like an all-satisfying treasure, and that will not make others glad in God. If I lived more like this, wouldn't I be asked more often? about the reason for the hope that is in me? Why don't people ask me about my hope? The answer is probably that I look as if I hope in the same things they do. My life doesn't look like it is on the Calvary Road, stripped down for sacrificial love, serving others with the sweet assurance that I don't need to be rewarded in this life. Work in my heart to make it only thirst for and be satisfied with you. Amen. And with that, let's pray and ask God to help us with his word this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, I'm challenged by these words again from a man who I think really understands the gospel well and understands the impact that it makes on the Christian life and what it does for the heart. It actually makes us thirst for you and, and long to be satisfied for you. That's the new heart that you give us. And so, God, here we are again this morning. We're flawed men. We're weak men. 
were men in need of help this morning, as much as we were men in need of help at the point of conversion, we're in need for some different things now. We're in need for your grace to sustain us. We're in need for your grace to be powerful in the gospel and sanctify us, to make us more holy. We're in need of grace this morning to bring joy into this new life that we live, the joy of Christ. We need your spirit to come and to open our eyes so that we might see and know you in your word. So God, we pray that you would come and meet with us as we open your word. This is There's no better place that a bunch of men could be early on a Saturday morning than in front of your word with laid wide open and our hearts exposed before you. I pray that you would come, that you would soften our hearts, that you'd make our hearts like that soil that was very fruitful when the seed hit it. Only you can do that. And Father, help us to um, understand gospel ministry a little better this morning by looking at the life of Paul as he was among the Thessalonians. Help us to see that um, the content of the gospel in our ministry to people is very important. We want to make sure that we're delivering the content, the, the gospel itself. But help us also to accompany that with the care of the gospel, that we need to actually care for people as we do that. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to strike the perfect balance that you desire, that, that Paul evidently appears to have had with the Thessalonians. Thank you for this word that um, will be before us this morning uh, and the growth that can come as a result of it. Father, would you please strengthen Grace Bible Church, strengthen it through these men, um, help these men to be strong in you and in your word, help them to make a difference in their families and in their roommates' lives that they live with. And Father, may the gospel go deep within us and even beyond us as a church because of men like this in the body. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, as usual, get up and get down. Whatever you need to do to make yourself comfortable and um, keep eating and drinking everything that's over there. All right. Hey, take out your worksheet. Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians 2. Last time we were together, we were in 1 Thessalonians 1, taking a look at the life of Paul as he ministered among the Thessalonians. And we saw there, if you remember, Paul made a big deal about the kind of men that they proved to be when they were among them. Remember? Actually, in chapter 1, he, he, he made it very clear that the gospel did come to you, and it did come in words. But his stronger point that he was trying to make in chapter 1 is it didn't merely come to you in word only. Remember that? Chapter 1, verse 5. He was very concerned about the report, about the kind of reception that he and his companions had with them. That was the report that was going around. The report was not that, hey, did you hear the message that Paul preached? Did you hear the the way he articulated the atonement? Did you hear that? That was not the report. In chapter 1, verse 9, they themselves reported about us what kind of reception we had with you. That we actually were well-received by you. We were receivable men. We were together. There was a a bonding of life that happened when we were together for the gospel in each other's lives. 
And we're going to continue that this morning in chapter 2 from verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read it, and then we'll dig into some gospel-centered truths for ministry. Verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But in contrast, we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What I want to do is, is just make observations with you on the text. This is not a sermon. I'm not going to give you an outline like that, but I just I love this passage, and I just love looking at and making observations with you from it. So we're going to make six gospel-centered observations uh, in regards to ministry, okay? The first one, I think you have some blanks to fill in. Ministry must be concerned first and most with engaging people with the gospel. That's number one, engaging people with the gospel. That's what our ministry needs to be concerned about, and we see that in, in verses 1 and 2. Paul said, you know, when we came to you, our coming was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel. What he's saying is, is look, what happened back in Philippi, uh, it might have made other men actually be discouraged in wanting to talk about the gospel anymore. But not us. In spite of all of that opposition, we came to you and we were still bold to preach the gospel to you. The gospel had to come to you. That's his main point here. Now, underneath that, let's talk about some fundamentals of a gospel-engaging ministry. I think I've got three of them there for you. Um, the first is this. Gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. You've got a couple blanks there to fill in. Gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. And that comes out in verse 1. Our coming to you was not in vain. And we get that idea of hollow or wanting from the word vain. If something is vain, it's empty. It's wanting. It, it leaves you wanting something more. And he says, our coming to you was not hollow. It was not empty. It was not in vain. It didn't leave you wanting something more. In other words, we could say it the opposite way. Our coming to you was, was marked by fullness. It was a full time that we had together. And what made his time together with them full? He says in verse 2, we spoke the gospel to you. And so here's the reality, guys. The reality is, is if, if you have a relationship with somebody that is not 
does not have the gospel at the center of that relationship, that relationship is hollow. It just is. That's the truth. It's not filled up to what it could be yet and what it must be. And Paul is saying, when we came to you, we, even after being beaten, had boldness to bring the gospel to you, and so our coming was not a waste because the gospel was there. Now, I have questions kind of marked down in each of these little, along the way, you know, capital Q. What would happen to your ministry if the gospel is not central in your relationships? What you're going to actually find is all of these questions, I think, have been pulled out, and they're actually your homework on the yellow sheet. And so we'll talk about some of these questions. We might skip over others of them. Um, so, uh, but you'll get a chance to interact with these questions on your homework, okay? So the first fundamental is gospel ministry is never hollow or found wanting. Secondly, gospel ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. Verse 2. It says verses 2 to 3 there on that second one. Just cross out verse 3. We're not even going to verse 3 yet. But gospel ministry requires boldness when surrounded by opposition. And I'm going to let you see this morning in verses 1 to 12, four sandwiches is what I call them. Um, You'll see that there is um, a piece of bread on top and a piece of bread on the bottom. Similar things being said like this. And then in the middle is something that is sandwiched between those two things. And so in looking verse um, 2, you'll see a sandwich. Here's the top layer of bread. We had already suffered and been mistreated. Now, how does the verse end? Amid much opposition. So you see, Paul is starting with the idea of trouble. He's ending with the idea of trouble. And what is in the middle? We spoke the gospel anyway. With boldness. So here's the point. Gospel ministry requires boldness when it is surrounded by opposition. So if you're going to be concerned to engage people with the gospel, um, guess what? Trouble. Trouble's going to come. So what Paul is saying here is um, what's not driving him is human affirmation. We we were just so encouraged by the Philippians, and so we thought we'd expand our ministry and come to you, hoping that you would encourage us also. No, we were beaten. Silly. In Philippi, and yet we came and we, being surrounded by opposition, came and spoke anyway. Um, one of the questions I want to draw your attention to, uh, they're all kind of related. How much trouble exists in your relationships because of the gospel? I, I want you to, to think about that a little bit. Um, I know some of you have relationships with family where every time you're together with them, there's trouble. And it's not because you're a jerk. But it's because you love the gospel, and it brings about some trouble sometimes, and um, or maybe all of the time. Second question, what might be some reasons for the absence of trouble in our relationships? I don't know if you're like me, but I'll be honest with you guys. I am motivated by comfort, very easily so. And all I have to do is just for a quick hot second think about, you know, I'd really like for this just to be a comfortable conversation right now. And I can very easily talk myself out. If, and I'm convinced by what I think is the Holy Spirit, this isn't the right moment. It's just not the right time to, to get into the gospel. I can do that to myself like that. Can you? Um, but I want you to give some thought to some reasons for the absence of trouble in our relationships that we might have. Okay. 
And by the way, this is not an exhortation for you to be a jerk, okay, in relationships and cause trouble and be offensive. Um, but think about some real reasons why there might be absence of genuine trouble in our relationships. Um, the third fundamental, gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. Gospel ministry finds its boldness in God alone. He says that in verse 2. We had boldness, look at this, in our God. Not in our circumstances, not in their encouragement to us, but our boldness came not from people. Uh, this boldness didn't come from my own natural genetic makeup of what, it's just my family's bold, you know, the, the, the Paul family is bold. We just, my dad was that way, we're just bold people. And so, my, no, our boldness was in God, he says. And that word for boldness is actually an interesting word. It, it literally means all speech. So how do we get boldness from that? We, we had all speech come out of our mouths when we were with you. And that all speech was rooted in, in our God. What he's saying is, man, we just had a freedom to say anything we wanted with you. We could say everything that was on our hearts. So we were bold and courageous in speech is kind of the way it, the, the thought is here. Um, Paul just had this attitude of being in God so much, so often, that he was just, his mouth was just unlocked to be able to speak anything that came to his mind in regards to the gospel. So despite the trouble, Paul still felt quite easy about opening his mouth. Mike. So, like, I work with an unbelieving relative, and uh, sometimes I was like, hey, we did this at church, and it was great, but I feel kind of like he thinks that's stupid, you know, the church is dumb, and I don't know, I don't know if that's kind of the same thing, like, I want to talk about how great God is all the time, but sometimes I limit myself at the expense of him thinking And is that kind of, I guess the question is, is that a stupid way to think in light of what is being said here? No, not necessarily. Um, the, the, the thing, well, I don't know, I'm going to turn it back to you guys. What do you guys think? Did you hear his question? What do you guys think? Say it, summarize it. Did you say it? Yeah, say the question again a little louder. Um, is it stupid in light of what's being said here to want to talk about God all the time, but not for um, concern that it might not be profitable to the gospel? He's talking like at work, he works with an unbelieving you know, relative, and, and he wants to talk about spiritual things, and there's times when he senses that his relative is, thinks that that's just stupid. Um, what do you do in situations like that? You just keep talking? I just ask them. <laughs> ask, what would you ask him? Well, would you be comfortable if we just talked about this a little bit? And if he says no, I, I wouldn't be comfortable. Well, then, I mean, then obviously he wouldn't be comfortable. So you may want to back off. But if he says, oh, that's fine. So then you just... I mean, this is what, you know, this is what I read this morning, or this is what we talked about on Sunday, or this is what we talked about in Bill, you know, and uh, so you just, you just go as far as they can, so go with you. What about picking your battles? In what do you mean? In the sense of, you know, whether one realizes it or not, you know, even in a non-believer, you 
will have opportunities to all of a sudden, hey, you know, we, we spoke about this, or, you know, God talks about this, or if, if and when the occasion presents itself, jump on it, take it and run, and let God take it as far as it's going to go. Or, you know, to sit there and try to throw pearls at a pig is kind of a wasteful thing. But there are opportune moments where he will bring out a question that might be related to what you have done through or is found in the gospel and bring that and uh, put a spotlight on it. Bring it out and say, oh, look, this is what happens and this is why it happens and this is the problems that resolve because of who we are and what we are and you know, just go from there in the truth. Ever speaking the truth, or you know, let that be the guy. And it happens. Do we miss a lot of the opportunities? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do sometimes we lack the courage to stand and say, hey, you know, you talk a lot about this, but this is the truth. And I can I can tell you that this is what happened and this is why. And then go from there. And it's just the, don't miss those moments, those opportunities where you can actually, you know, get in and fight a good fight. That's good. Yeah, Dave. Um, I, I think of that one verse somewhere in Corinthians where it says, Paul says, says uh, some plant, some water, but God doesn't increase. I think I think if if we get back to the, this discipline one in our heart right condition and, and we're presenting it with the right grace I, I think that we should share and let God be responsible for the results yeah yeah Eric I know something that God really like normally during the course of the day I don't get one conversation I get three seconds here two minutes there and most of it's like kind of you know challenging we're talking about and for a long time, I was always putting like a filter on like the way I would speak to um, it's like believers, atheists, whatever. Uh, and so I just wouldn't say anything spiritual. Um, and um, the community that and they grow me more and more in that recognize those moments. And it's like, you know what? If God's blessing you in a way, give the glory to him and say, you know, God's really blessed. You know, because family comes up, like, well, God's really blessed my family. Or if you know, we're praying through things, you know, well, if we're praying through that decision or whatever, and it's just like laying a foundation for other conversations that God may provide later um, and other opportunities. And one of those opportunities came up where one of the guys at work was potentially being diagnosed with cancer. And I had the opportunity to say, I will be praying for you. And then that led into a good conversation. Um, and so it's just, being who we are, in front of Happy God. Uh, I have friends, mostly in California, who get to the point here. We don't talk about religion, that's my best friend. So we want to get together and do stuff, and, um, go places and eat. They want, they want. We like to do that, but we don't talk about religion. 
now, but at the same time, we will get together for the, I want to hang out with them, for them, you know, you know. Uh, we'll be talking, and then they're going to bring up some stuff that they want to bring up. <coughs> they will bring up stuff like uh, anything which is, I know, is sinful, like, you know, anything sinful to talk about. Women, talk about anything. They will bring up, okay, all of us. What are you telling me? So it's, because I think it's, you don't want me to tell you about the gospel. But at the same time, as we're hanging together, you want to tell me what you want. And what they want is something that is. You should be able to go both ways, what I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want to cruise one way street and still be friends, but you don't want to hear what I got to say. Yeah. But we're still friends, though. Yeah, we're still right. friends. Sometimes we just. But we are, we are really still friends. I mean, we spend money, anything that works, just to hang out. You know? But when it comes up to the issues, we call each other, what's going on? When you need this, you need that, you get it. You want that? You want that? But when you start talking about things, and I hope that there's something happen like Eric has to say, maybe sickness, something, that can bring something, yeah. Maybe something come out. But it's just. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. What do you think, in general, tends to motivate guys like us more in um, our relationships with the gospel? Fear and thought that most, most people are going to reject this, or God is working, and he's saving people everywhere, and, and it's through the gospel. Now, which motivates you more? I know what motivates me, if I'm honest. I'm pretty sure that everybody I'm coming into contact with today is going to reject not only the gospel, but me. And if they had some wood and some fire, they'd burn me. <laughs> I can talk myself into that and be sure of that. And what I'm, what I'm motivated by more is really more a Scott-centered thing than it is a gospel-centered thing and a God-centered thing. Because, and, and I have to, I, if, you've, if you've had any conversations um, about this, think on this. Ask yourself and put in the middle of it if the Holy Spirit is working in a person or if he was going to work in a person to convert them, what does that person need? Oh my goodness. Is the Holy Spirit doing stuff like that these days? Absolutely. So open your mouth and talk and let God do what God's going to do or maybe like David said, you know, from Paul planting a seed and you'll never get to see anything of it later. But you planted a seed, but you gotta open your mouth and you gotta you gotta speak. And we have to be able to be bold about that and, and have our hearts be in the right place. David, thanks for drawing us back to discipline one. If we're shepherding our hearts towards God in his word to see what kind of a God he is like and the things that he's doing to save sinners, we are more inclined to step out and open our mouths because we'll be bold in him. We'll have a freedom to speak in him. But if we're not shepherding our hearts and we're more concerned about reading people, oh, there, yeah, I know this guy. He's, he's, a, he's an atheist. And so, I, you know, it's probably not, it's not the right time to talk with him. You know, then we're, we're never going to open our mouth. And we'll never be bold. And we will never finish all six points if we keep doing this. So, number two. Yes. Absolutely. As, as much as possible, let's make sure we front load with Jesus. 
That we what? Front load with Jesus. Yeah, and what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is it, it's, it's sometimes all we can talk about is church. Yeah. And that's okay, because that lets people know that we go to church, which means that if someday God doesn't work in them and they think, I need to know more about God or whatever, then you might be the person that they go to. But as much as possible, wherever we're being intentional, wherever we're thinking about things we can say to people, let's front load with Jesus. People, first and foremost, need Jesus. Um, and, and it's really easy, I, maybe it's not as easy as I, as I say this, but when, when people kick back on religion, right, it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm not into organized religion or whatever. It's like, hey, you know what? That's fine, man. Let me show you Jesus, yeah. right? And Jesus comes with the church, right? I mean, yeah, I, don't, I don't want to drive a wedge between Christ and the church, yeah. but let's let, let's let the let's let the engine pull the train. And, and, yeah. and, and, even, and even, I would even take that, John, that's excellent, and I would push it even another step further. And it, it primarily has to be Jesus and him crucified. Because a lot of people are open to Jesus and the way of Jesus. His teachings, and he's a good man. And we're not talking about that only. We're talking about a good man who was crucified to bear the sin penalty. And so we need to lead with that. This draws me back to what I said at the beginning. Look, let's say that you, in your meeting with your friend, that you're just, you're sure they need the gospel. If what you lead with and what you talk about all the time is, hey, will you come to church with me? Oh, guess what, a church? A church with this and a church with that and, and for Christmas, church. And, and will you come? When they pull the parking brake up on you or want to avoid you when they see you coming, what conclusions can you draw? Are they rejecting Christ and him crucified? You have no idea. They might be rejecting church, and they might be rejecting their boyhood memory of the Methodist church that they were in that just was a, a mess in their hometown. And he doesn't want to, you know, if that's what you're about, I'm rejecting you. You see, so when we don't get to the issue, which is Christ and him crucified, then we don't really know what they're rejecting. Or maybe they do want to come to church with you. And they, oh, I'm all about church. And the first thing they hear at church is Christ and him crucified. And they're like, later. So you have no idea why they're accepting you or why they're rejecting you when you if you don't get to the gospel and make the gospel really the issue. Can I just say? Yeah, please. I just reminded this week um, at my shop, Childlike Faith, I had a customer in there, and there were some young boys in there, senior Christians, and he asked them, he goes, so are you guys all ready for Santa Claus? And they just turn around and look at him, and it's like, that is not, that, that's not the reason. The reason is Jesus. And the guy started laughing. He's like, you're right. You got me. So he is a believer, too. I didn't know that. But just so now children, they won't hesitate. Just like the world won't hesitate to tell us about all the stuff they want to do or what they're doing. These children didn't hesitate. They just want to share Jesus with this guy. That's great. And I was just encouraged by it. I was like, wow. Yeah. It's very simple in their yeah. eyes, isn't it? Yeah. And We've grown up and gotten sophisticated. <laughs> so, all right, let's go to number two, all right? Gospel-centered truth, number two. In a gospel-centered ministry, God is the primary audience and influence. <laughs> Verses three to six. God is the primary audience and influence. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take both of those uh, one at a time. Let's talk about proof that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry. Paul lays this out here in verses 3 to 6. We're just going to kind of observe 3 to 6 and think about how in Paul's mind, the main thing that's on his mind in his gospel ministry is that God is watching. This is all about God. Look at the kind of the bookends on verses 3 to 6. If you look at the end of verse 2, 
It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel that originates from God. It's the gospel that belongs to God. It's not, now he's not saying our gospel, like he said earlier. He's saying it's the gospel of God. In other words, what, what's on his mind is this message is not my message at this point. This message is God's. God is the one who is setting the agenda for the content. Look at verse 6, right in the middle there. Even though as apostles of Christ, the, the word apostles means sent ones, we are sent ones who did not send ourselves. What's on my mind, Paul is saying here, in this kind of flow of verses 3 to 6, is that I'm concerned about God's message and Christ's mission. I'm not the one setting the mission. I'm not the one setting the message. This is all of God, and this is part of the proof um, that God, that little first um, hyphen there, God is the origin of our message and mission. You can fill in those blanks. God is the origin of our message and our mission. And that comes at the end of verse 2 and in verse 6, where it's the gospel that belongs to God, and we are apostles that belong to Christ. Um, Paul is not the one inventing the message at all. Secondly, the second proof that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry is that God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. Verse 4. We'll come back to verse 3 in a, in a moment. God tests us to entrust us with his gospel. Just as we, and, and this is your second sandwich, by the way, okay? Now, let me point out something to you. If you've got the NAS, it's not, it's not as clear. <coughs> verse 4, we have been approved. That's one word. Um, it is a word for testing. That means you, you test something in order to prove it to be genuine. The whole point of testing it is not because you want to see it fail, the point is to prove it, to show that it's genuine. So you would take a metal or whatever in their day and you would melt it down to uh, further refine it, but to show its genuineness, that it's the real deal. Okay. Uh, the same word is used at the end of the verse in verse 4. God who examines our hearts. I'm not really sure why they felt they needed to do approve in the beginning and then translate it examine second. It's the same idea, but it's the same exact word. Um, so the, the idea here is the sandwich of we have been approved by God <clears throat> that's the first part of the verse the last part of the verse is God examines our hearts the idea of both of them is test we are tested by God to be shown to be genuine we are tested by God to be shown that we are genuine and what is in the middle of the bread of the sandwich we speak We've been entrusted with the gospel, and we speak it. So we've been tested to be entrusted with the gospel and to speak. Um, Morris has a great question, in, or a quote in his commentary. He says, since the gospel is of divine origin, no one may take it upon himself to proclaim it. God chooses his messengers, and we are all okay with that. God chooses his messengers. It's the second part here that's a little challenging to us. And he tests them before committing the gospel to their trust. Wow. So, man, as you think about wanting to be entrusted with the gospel in ministry, in, in your family's lives, in your own life, um, you need to be aware that if you want to be entrusted with the gospel, God is going to test you. Now, why is he testing you? Not to see you collapse and to be a fool and a failure. He tests you to show the genuineness of what he has done in you. 
It's a refining element. It is good to refine metal. It is good to refine and purify things. It's not so that you throw away and show how bad it was. It's so that you make it better. And God does this. If you want to be in trust with the gospel, he will test you and refine you over and over and over. Third proof that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry is that God watches us and is always present. God watches us and is always present. Verse 5. We never came with flattering speech, as you know, for, nor with a pretext for greed. Here it is. God is witness. Paul was very aware that God was his primary audience everywhere he went. God's watching. Ask him. Fourth proof <coughs> that God is the primary audience in gospel ministry for Paul is we won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. Look at verse 6. We won't use authority to gain praise for ourselves. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. You see, Paul is not driven in ministry to make a name for himself. Why? Because God is watching. His main audience is God, and it's not about him in ministry getting a place of glory or attention. Paul's not driven by what other men might think is an acceptable thing to do. And we know that this is a very early on letter of Paul's. We know that later on, uh, there were others who were, called themselves super apostles. And they were going about and they wanted glory. And they wanted, they took money from the people they brought the gospel to. And, and they wanted to be seen to be super apostles. And Paul's saying, look, from the very beginning, that's not me. And you know why? Because God is my primary audience. Let me tell you how I know it. It's not my message. I didn't come up with it. And it's not my mission. It's the gospel of God. It's the mission of Christ. We are apostles of Christ. And you know what? God tests me in this. I'm very aware of the refiner's fire on my life. I can show you the bruises still from Philippi. God is witness. God is watching. And so I'm not out to use my authority, even though I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm not out to use my authority in a way that would elevate me and make me look any, uh, at any level of greatness. So that's proof that God is the primary audience. What about the fact that God is the primary influence on Paul in gospel ministry? Well, if God is the primary influence in gospel ministry, that means four things that we can see here. From verse 3, it means that God purifies my exhortations. Look at verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but we have been tested. Um, he purifies my exhortations. Um, it is the gospel of God that has come to you. So why would my exhortation come from error? Why would my exhortation come from impurity? Why would I be about deceit? It's not my message, and the message doesn't fit that. If God is the primary influence in gospel ministry, then that means he opens my mouth, verse 4. Secondly, he opens my mouth. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak. We have the boldness in our God. Verse 2, right? We open our mouths. We won't be able to be silent if God is the primary one influencing ministry. So he purifies my exhortations. He opens my mouth. Thirdly, he drops my mask in ministry. Verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Look, when somebody flatters you, They've got a mask on. When you are tempted to flatter, you're putting a mask on. 
Because what you're saying to them is, I'm going to be one way with you, but there's really something else going on behind. When somebody comes with a pretext for greed, they want something, they're wearing a mask. Because they really want something else. They really want something else. And Paul is saying, God is the one watching. God is the one who's not just my audience, but he's influencing me. And so flattery of speech is completely unacceptable in gospel ministry. And coming with a pretext for greed, completely unacceptable. What is acceptable in gospel ministry is just genuineness, sincerity. I am what I am, and I'm coming to you clearly, and it's laid out on my sleeve what I am and what I'm after. So if God is the primary influence, that means he drops my mask in ministry. Uh, and lastly, he humbles my use of authority. Paul was an apostle of Christ. I mean, after all, how much had been revealed to Paul about the mystery of Christ, the church, and, and other things that have been kept hidden. And yet, even though he was an apostle of Christ, and even though he might have been able to, before God, to assert his authority as such, he never did. He never did. A quote there from, um, I don't know what it's from. It might just be a thought I had. Any authority I might possess in ministry is not about me. Okay? Any position you're given, small group ministry leader, uh, other kind of ministry leader, that position is not about you. It's about being able to bring the gospel to people and to care for people. Authority in ministry is always to be exercised under the approval and under the pleasure and under the witness of God. Our first resort in ministry must not be the exertion of our authority for authority's sake. Some, some, some people are this way. Some guys are this way. The first thing they want you to feel when you step into their ministry is that they're in charge. Okay? That's not the way it is. With Paul, it's not the way it is with gospel ministry. And I want to be, I just want to be honest with you guys and, and, and confess to you what my temptations are, my weaknesses as a as a somebody who's trying to minister the gospel with my life. Two things as I as I think about this for me. I find myself very interested most of the time in wanting man's eyes on my ministry. Um, I have to fight that temptation all the time. That I, I'm, I, I find myself oftentimes more interested in man's witness, other people seeing and knowing and hearing and being aware of. I, I want that more than I seem to be aware of that God is witness, that God is watching, that God is a primary audience. And I have to fight for that all the time uh, to want more eyes watching rather than being aware of God's eyes watching. And, and also, too, boy, I can feel it very quickly. Uh, in certain situations in ministry where I, I, I am quick to want to make my authority the issue, especially in conflict or disagreement. Um, when, when, when I'm given a position of authority, perhaps as an elder or whatever, I, I, can, I, I find myself having to wrestle with the fact that, okay, look, this is not about my authority as an elder. This is about um, something much more important than that at this moment. And I have to shepherd my heart through that. And I think um, those are the things that men wrestle with a lot in ministry is, is wanting a lot of recognition, wanting a lot of human eyes watching, uh, want to be on a stage and want to broadcast to the world what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, so that all the eyes of the world can see. And then uh, anybody who 
comes and interacts in a certain way, I can be very tempted to want to say, I'm just to remind you I'm an elder and I'm in charge. Um, so I'm just being honest with you guys. These are things that I am tempted with. I hope I'm not overcome by them or enslaved to them at all, but it's challenging. Um, a third gospel-centered truth. Number three, a gospel-centered ministry is characterized by a motherly gentleness. Motherly gentleness. If there is a verse that would seriously test your manhood with the gospel, it would be this verse. Okay? We proved to be gentle among you. There's some good manuscript evidence that the word gentle should actually be babes or babies. Here's Paul. We proved to be babies among you. Uh, you know, as a, like a nursing mother, tenderly caring for her own children. You know what I'm like? I'm, I'm, like, a, I'm like a woman. I'm, I'm like a mother in my gospel ministry. Caring for, you know, I'm like a baby. When was the last time you said that or thought of that? Lord, today make me like a mom. <laughs> anyway. Um, the whole point here is, is the contrast in verse 7. Do you see the word but? But. That means whatever he said before that, he's going to say something in contrast to it. What did he say in verse 6 then? Um, look, we, we're apostles of Christ. We do have authority. And, and even though we might even have a proper use of apostolic authority. It's true. It's legitimate authority. But contrast, baby. I was, I, was, I was more like a baby among you. Now, what is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying here that um, babies don't come with authority. Babies are just simple. They are authority-less. And Paul is saying, when I came to you, it was so clear, I hope to you, that it wasn't about my authority. It was about the fact that I came to you as, as if I was one who didn't have authority. I was, I was just very simple. I was just very... Um, pure and just down on a very low level like a, like a child is. <clears throat> so that means he preached in Thessalonica as, as simply as possible. He tried to make it as simple as it could be for a babe. And he says, um, like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Look, does a, does a mother burden her baby? course not. A mother doesn't like put the weight on a child. A nursing mother doesn't set a table and expect the infant to somehow get up to the table so that the babe can eat. A mother is just the opposite. A mother, when a mother is nursing, a mother is the most humble thing at that point because she brings herself to the level of the babe. She lifts the babe up to her and she makes herself completely open and accessible to the child. There's nothing sweeter, there's nothing more tender, there's nothing more loving, there's nothing more humble than that. Nursing is about mom being down on the same level as the babe. And that's what Paul is saying. I was just down on your level to help you. I didn't come, even though I might have authority as an apostle of Christ, I didn't use it. And he picks a very humble example here. Hebert says the idea is the condescension of the true Christian pastor who is willing to put himself on the level of others, who is, which is the essence of sympathy. It's the application of the principle of the incarnation itself. I mean, my goodness, this is the time of year when we're really thinking about this, right? What did God do to make himself accessible? 
Did he stay on a throne high in heaven and yell at sinners and say, get up here? No, he came down to the lowliest of places, entered the world naked and left it naked at the cross. By the way, cross out the word pastor. It's true that's what he said, but the idea is the condescension of a true Christian, period. I want you to think all oh, that's just for pastors to pay attention to. It's for all of us to pay attention to. Calvin says, um, a mother in nursing her children manifests, should be plural, manifests, a certain rare and wonderful affection. Inasmuch as she spares no labor and trouble, she shuns no anxiety, and she is never wearied out by her constant diligence and attention. Whatever the child needs when she's nursing, the child, the mom needs to be able to give, right? And Paul is saying, that's what we were like. A gospel-centered ministry is characterized by motherly gentleness. Um, the question I have for you is, how well are you not only in assessing the spiritual level of another, like where are they at, but then gently stepping to their level to build them up? That is huge. Because there's two ways you can do it. You can get up on, a, on the seat of Moses and sit high and yell at all the scoundrels down below you and tell them, yell at them what the truth is, or you can get off of it and get down to where they are in the mud like a shepherd does with sheep. You know, it's very interesting. I grew up around, well, not personally on my own property. I grew up, though, around a lot of cattle in Nebraska. Um, and, you know, you, cattle, you don't, you don't stand in front of them and start walking and say, come this way. <laughs> they will look at you and they will chew their cud and they'll just think you're the dumbest thing on the planet. <laughs> you get behind cattle and you get dogs and you get whips and switches and electric prods and you get behind them and you smack them and then they just start running away from you. And then you've got to get over here so they don't run that way because you want them to go over here. And you can do ministry that way. <laughs> you, can. you can. He's got and the people do it. <laughs> That's right. You can do that. And um, but the, the imagery in scripture is not of herding cattle, but it's what? Shepherding sheep. And shepherding sheep is, is very, very humble. Because sheep are built to follow. It's just the way they are. God made them that way. And they get themselves in horrible places. They'll be stuck in mud and in all kinds of infestation they shouldn't be in. And the shepherd cannot get behind them and he can't stand up on a hill and yell at them and say, get out of that mess! He actually has to go down and get in it himself and lift them up and out, set them upright. If sheep fall down, they can't get up. He has to actually help them. I mean, it's just the perfect imagery. Why You know why God created sheep is to help you understand you <laughs> and me. And so that we would understand what a shepherd must be like. And, and Paul is saying something like that. Look, you, it's not about bringing authority. It's about being a servant. It's about being simple. It's about being humble. It's about getting down on the level of people. So assess people's spiritual condition and then adjust yourself to get there to be able to deliver the gospel and gospel care how you need to. Right? Fourth, gospel-centered truth. Number four. A gospel-centered ministry will be satisfied with nothing less than deep affection for people. Deep affection for people. Sandwich number three in verse eight. Look how the verse begins. 
having so fond an affection for you. That's a strong statement. And how does the verse end? You became very dear to us. Fond affection. You see the two slices of bread in the verse? And what's in the middle? Oh man, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. And I think verse 8 is what Paul meant in chapter 1, verse 5. Our gospel did not come to you in word only. We imparted to you, chapter 2, verse 8, yes, the gospel, but not merely the gospel. We imparted to you our very lives. I wanted you to have my life as you got the gospel. It's an amazing thing Paul is saying here. And you might be tempted in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 to think that Paul might say something like, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how people treat you. It doesn't matter how you're going to treat me. What matters is we have the boldness in our God to come and preach the gospel to you. Gospel content regardless of what you think of me or what you do to me. Well, chapter 2, verse 8 kind of balances that out. Saying, look, yeah, we wanted to bring the gospel to you, and it's true. We don't care what you think, and we didn't care what the Philippians thought and what they did to us. But you know what? We love you. We care about you. We have fond affection for you. We didn't even know you. We didn't even do a research study on you. We just showed up. And we, in God, were given affection for you. You are very dear to us. How is our effectiveness, the question I have for you, with the gospel impacted by the level or the absence of affection for others? Are there any relationships in which your love must be rekindled? How do you rekindle your affection for someone? Give some good thoughts to that. Look, and, and be thinking there's, there's two prongs to gospel ministry. Gospel content, if we're learning anything in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, it is there's gospel content. The gospel must come. But Paul is very clear to say it does not come without gospel care, without gospel love. You love people. You have fond affection for them. You want your life to touch their life. It's not one at the expense of the other. Both of those must be together. Fifth observation, a gospel-centered ministry. A gospel-centered ministry keeps the path to the gospel clear. Keeps the path to the gospel clear. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. He's helping them remember When we were with you, um, we did not require that you pay us so that we could live and eat and and be able to bring the gospel to you. We came and we labored very, very hard. In fact, it labored to the point of hardship. And we worked during the night because that's when you were awake during the day. And we wanted to be with you as much as possible. We worked whenever we could, night or day. We didn't care. We did all of that because we didn't want to be a burden to any of you. We proclaimed the gospel, and we didn't want to be a burden that kept you from the proclamation of the gospel. And um, Paul is, I think, giving a a great principle here, primarily for frontier missions type things, where you're really going out on the front end. I think it is best for those people at that point who are caring for that, much like what I know John and Hillary want to do, uh, go to a place where there's no um, gospel yet, what Matt and Cameron want to do in PNG, um, is best for them to not walk in and be among the people and say, you know, before we go any further, the way that I'm going to be able 
to provide for my family is if you all will um, you know, kind of give on a regular basis. When Paul went out on the front lines and he was going out, he did not do that. Um, behind him, as he cut through and left awake, he encouraged them, you know, pay your elders who spend time teaching you and helping you. But frontier missions, I think you, you don't want to do that. I think the model of Paul is, is otherwise. Um, Paul didn't hesitate to receive money from the Philippians and the poor Macedonians, but it was after he had already been through. But the point is, is Paul wanted to keep a path clear for the gospel. He didn't want that to be a burden for them as they heard the proclamation of the gospel. Last one, number six, a gospel-centered ministry's primary goal is transformation of life that is worthy of God. Verses 10 to 12, and we have our last sandwich. And, and it's uh, kind of big. In verse 10, the first piece of bread is Paul's transformed life. Look at this. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Do you get the impression that it's important for Paul to communicate to them, look, you saw that we lived godly lives. <laughs> you saw what our life was like. We were not separate from you. We were close enough that you could see. You remember, you recall, you know, your witnesses, how transformed our life was. Verse 12, so that you would have a transformed life, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and into his glory. His transformed life, the top piece of bread, the bottom piece of bread, um, your transformed life, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And what is in the middle? Verse 11, uh, Paul was like a father, exhorting that transformation of life. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father with his own children so that you would live a transformed life. So Gospel Center Ministries' um, primary goal is transformation of life. You can't keep living the way that you were before the gospel came into your life. And you know what? The gospel won't let you. But you must labor with the gospel in your life. Now, a conclusion. The bigger picture here. Two things that I want you to get. Number one and number two. The, uns the inseparable, unbeatable combination in a gospel-centric ministry or gospel-central ministry. And that is proclamation, number one. And number two, uh, you can pick your word. Incarnation or demonstration. Incarnation or demonstration. Becoming flesh, you know, becoming, uh, uh, incarnating your ministry so that people can actually see you. And, and I have there for you a whole bunch of different um, the verses that we've looked at over the last two times together. Was Paul concerned to proclaim the gospel? Absolutely. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, we, we came and we proclaimed the gospel to you in word, but not in word only. Verse 6, we rec you received the word. Chapter 1, verse 8, for the word of the Lord sounded forth. Chapter 2, verse 2, we came and we, we, we spoke the gospel. Verse 4, we are entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Other, the, we, we kept away from the wrong kind of speaking. Never came with flattering speech. Verse 5, verse 8, we imparted to you the gospel, but not only the gospel, but our very lives. Verse 9, we proclaimed the gospel of God. Um, so Paul was clear about proclamation. Paul drew, a, drew heavy attention to the gospel itself in his ministry. But secondly, what stands out equally strong in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 is the incarnation of Paul's ministry. 
the life-on-life aspect of Paul's ministry. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, You guys know, you saw it, what we proved to be among you. Chapter 1, verse 9, everybody heard what kind of perception we had with you. It was clear that what people heard about was that life touched life when we came to you. Our coming to you, our entrance into your life, chapter 2, verse 1, was not empty. Chapter 2, verse 2, you know. Paul, over and over, do you remember these phrases? As you know, verse 2. As you know, verse 5. You recall, verse 9, brethren. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, as you know. See, he could draw on the fact and say, look, you guys remember because our life touched your life. We were there. We were observable right in front of you. Our life touched you. We were gentle among you. We imparted to you our very lives. You know how we behaved toward you. We were exhorting and imploring each one of you. So Paul equally drew heavy attention to the life-on-life aspect of his gospel ministry, his life interaction with them. It was measurable. And he could say to them, you guys know. You saw it with your own eyes. And what I want you to do is a couple questions for your homework. How would you rate your own life on this combination? How do you think you are? Are you strong proclamation, weak incarnation? Or are you really have no problem loving people, but you're just more difficult to open your mouth? And I'd love for you to rate our church on this as well and, and give us some feedback on what you think about how we are as a church, where we're strong, where we're weak. And if you have any ideas on how we've become, why we became weak there, and what your suggestions might be, it'd be great to hear from you on that. Okay? All right. We made it through 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Now, what I'd like to have us do is take some small group time. Um, 